Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Let's talk about oil and gasoline. Joining me now, Stephen Shork. He is the president of the Shork Group, joining me from Villanova, Pennsylvania. All right, Stephen Shork, I was noting that uh, gasoline prices are at a two-year high, at least on the national average, tracked by the AAA. Uh, yes, they are on the high. And, of course, this has to do everything with the price rise in crude oil that has been going on for the better part of the year. And it really got a kickstart uh, last month with regard to the decision out of OPEC. Uh, I want to point out that, though, yes, even though gasoline prices are high relative to where we've been in the past, that is to say adjusted for inflation, gasoline prices, while they are dearer relative to a year ago, they're still relatively cheap. And keep in mind, we're also at a time of the year where demand is very strong. And demand this December happened to be stronger than usual because we had the coincidence of the Hanukkah holiday overlapping with the Christmas holiday. So you had that many more shoppers hitting the road just about at the same time. So you have the combination of higher oil prices, strong demand, which is transitory, uh, but once again, adjusted for inflation, we're still in very good shape. Well, Stephen, what's your outlook? Oil right now, West Texas up 1%. That's 53.58 for a barrel of West, Te- uh, West Texas crude. Also, give us your thoughts on natural gas higher by one and a quarter percent, $3.71 per million BTU. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, with oil prices, uh, I've been in the camp for the past two years, and I will remain in that camp for 2017. That oil in the mid-50s is you are testing the highs of what the market can bear. Uh, there was an interesting study put up by the Dallas Federal Reserve a couple of months ago where they interviewed 150 executives in the oil and gas industry. The key question was, at what price would you need to see to bring back a substantial amount of production here in the U.S., and the overwhelming response was oil in between $55 and $60 a barrel. So now we look at what has happened during this rally. Well, first and foremost, we had a sharp decline in U.S. production through the first half of this year, but that decline ebbed and plateaued at the end of the summer. And actually, since October, U.S. crude oil production has been inching higher. And so U.S. production was already rising in spite of what OPEC was or was not going to say last month in Vienna. And then when we look at some other metrics in the market, the CFTC data, this is data that gives you and tells you and breaks out the positions being held by speculators, producers, merchants, so forth in the market. And when we look at that data, producers are now holding the shortest position. And when I say shortest position, Pim, I'm talking about they've sold oil forward in the futures market. That position now is at a nine-year high. So a producer is not a speculator. A producer will only sell oil forward if they intend to bring more production to the market. So when we look at that data at a nine-year high, when we also look at the data of the forward curve, if we look at the pricing as we go out along the future, 
as we go out along the x-axis month after month, we've seen a sharp rise in oil prices through the next six months. But that sharp rise has actually declined. And we're actually seeing heavy selling pressure because we have not seen a commensurate increase in price in oil for priced in the latter half of this year and in 2018, 2019. So anecdotally, Pim, what I'm taking away from that is when we look at the CFTC data, when we look at the Dallas Fed, when we look at the fact that we have not seen a knock-on impact to prices uh, out into the future, I'm of the belief that producers, U.S. shale producers, are getting ready to have a very productive 2017. And a lot of the oil that OPEC has promised to take off of the market, U.S. producers are willing to put a lot of that oil back onto the market. Thanks very much, Stephen Shork. He is the president of the Shork Group. He says oil in the mid-50s, $50 a barrel, that is testing the highs of oil prices. All right, to learn more about consumer confidence, we turn to Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators for the Conference Board. And just to note, the headline is U.S. Consumer Confidence Index increased to 113.7 in December. It is the highest level since August of 2001. Lynn Franco, thanks for being with us. Uh, good to be back. Tell us the details, current conditions. Let's start there. Okay, we had a little bit of a mixed picture. We had a little bit of a decline in current conditions as uh, consumers uh, saw a little bit of softening in uh, overall economic conditions and economic conditions. But overall, the figures for the fourth quarter remain very strong. Now, the quote that you have that leads the report talks about the post-election surge in optimism for the economy. How much of that is tied to the stock market's performance? A lot is tied to the stock market, but also consumers' expectations for business conditions, employment, and income really surged in December. In fact, expectations are at a 13-year high, and expectations for the stock uh, prices and the stock market overall are also at a 13-year high. Now, this includes the short-term report as well, the short-term outlook improving in December as well. Absolutely. And that's what drove consumer confidence this month. We saw expectations uh, surge across the board. And now the question becomes is, you know, do these expectations uh, become realizations? Because that's really going to be the key for holding these high levels of optimism going into 2017. Lynn, you mentioned consumer incomes. And I'm wondering if you could give us more detail. Well, we saw here that the percent of consumers expecting their incomes to increase went to 21 percent. That's the highest reading we've seen since December of 07, which is right before uh, sort of the crisis hit a max. Um, and in terms of their decrease, again, we're going all the way back to 2007. So consumers are really positive about their income expectations. And tied into that is their expectations for stock markets as well. What about consumer expectations for the labor market? Very good as well. Here we saw that increase to about 21% saying they expect more jobs uh, versus just 14% saying they expect fewer jobs. And that uh, is the highest level we've seen since back in February of 2011. Con uh, conditions uh, for businesses, uh, that's set to improve over the next six months as well. Absolutely. There we saw 23.6 of consumers uh, telling us that they expect con conditions to improve. 
that's the highest level we've seen since uh, February of 2011. So it's really these expectations for business conditions, employment, and obviously that will then lend itself to an increase in income that are driving the surge that we've seen in confidence this month. Now, Lynn, this is not the only indicator that you look at. For example, the measure of CEO confidence, as well as things such as help wanted online. Tell us about how this all fits together in a picture. What would you describe it as? I think what we're seeing right here is just sort of some post-election optimism from what we're seeing with our under, you know, other indicators, whether it's uh, employment indicators or a leading economic index, all look for a pickup in sort of uh, economic activity in, in the first quarter of 2017. I think with uh, consumer confidence now, the key is you know, are we going to be able to maintain these levels? And that then uh, really becomes a question of, will the economy pick up further? Will uh, employment gains pick up further? And will wage growth continue? So we're expecting that, uh, whether or not we get a little bit of a retreat in the next couple of months, uh, that could be possible. But we still see a very confident consumer. And Lynn, just quickly, based on your experience, is the uh, is the economy going to lead this indicator or is it going to lag the indicator? I think it's going to sort of lead the indicator. And I think the key here is what really happens in terms of job growth and wage growth. Uh, and if these uh, both of these don't sort of pick up in the next couple of months, we could see a little bit of a retreat in consumer confidence. Uh, but if we just take a step back, I mean, we've been at very high levels uh, since the summer. We've been at over 100. So I think overall uh, we should maintain levels that reflect a very confident consumer. Thank you very much. Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators for the Conference Board. All right, one stock that is falling and uh, has well has fallen this year rather is uh, Banca Monte di Paschi di Siena down more than 87%. Here to tell us more about the future of the bank is Chiara Albanese, our Rome-based markets reporter for Bloomberg. Chiara, tell us the latest details on the rescue or attempted rescue of uh, Banca Monte di Paschi. Good morning, everyone. Uh, yes, indeed, the stock, as you mentioned, has fallen, uh, but trading has been altered for a few days, uh, given that uh, the bank, uh, which is the, the world's oldest bank, is actually in the eye of the storm because um, of uh, its inability to have a sustainable plan to, to plug in uh, a capital shortfall. The latest on this front um, has been uh, a bank, uh, um, a letter from the European Central Bank to the, to the bank, uh, which was acknowledged uh, yesterday evening, saying that the, the capital shortfall is actually almost double that what initially was expected. Uh, this means that a 20 billion fund that was set up by the state um, earlier earlier this month to help the, the, the bank could be almost entirely taken up or, or for its most part taken up by Montepaschi only. Well, what has the government's response been to the ECB's letter saying that the bank needs more money, and as you just described, that 20 billion euro effort was designed not just for Monte di Paschi, but for other Italian banks as well. The, the government 
has been um, silent at the moment, but local media has been saying that the intervention could uh, could be uh, almost uh, 6.5 billion from the state. So basically, the government would step in, covering most of the the capital shortfall. What about the bondholders? Will the bondholders end up with any value if the bank receives this injection of capital from the Italian government? The bondholders um, could save could save part of their investments, but they will uh, most definitely uh, bear a loss. In this case, um, both the state and, and the ECB, especially in an interview with the ECB supervisory uh, board member Angeloni earlier today, saying that yes, uh, the bondholders also have to, to chip in into, into the, the shortfall and, and, and basically combine uh, their efforts with the state. What is the state of the bank's liquidity right now? At the moment, the ECB said that the bank is still solvent, which is definitely good news for for the market, for investors, and for those following the story closely. Um, But the liquidity has been deteriorating very quickly. And the ECB mentioned in particular what happened in terms of liquidity increase during the the month of December and the days before. So it has been uh, a liquidity deterioration quite sudden, quite fast. In, in the in the run up to, to to the latest news that we just we just discussed, Chiara, it's worth noting that not all Italian banks are facing the kind of pressure that Monte di Paschi is facing. Correct. Correct. Not all Italian banks are in the same condition, and Monte Paschi is definitely uh, the bank which is in the weakest position, uh, but um, most uh, or several other banks are also. Uh, feeling the pressure of uh, non-performing loans, uh, a burden that uh, overall is about $360 billion for the country, and other banks uh, are expected to also seek the aid of the funds that was approved by the government. Has there been any reaction to a plan to put all of the bad loans into a bad loan bank and be able to ring-fence the problems? again, the issue is the European Central Bank, which is monitoring closely uh, what is going on with, with Montepaschi. And um, the plan that, that was uh, advised by, by JP Morgan until a few weeks ago, uh, a, a few days actually ago, um, also looked into this possibility, but that uh, was uh, set aside for the moment. What happens over the next week or so? Are there meetings between the Italian government and European Central Bank officials, or are they everyone just taking a break? The, 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 the contacts are, are still ongoing, and the fact that um, the, the, the ECB responded to the letter and Montepaschi sent out a statement on, on a day that is, is actually a holiday in Italy uh, is a signal that everyone is, is, is still uh, very much um, at the table, uh, even if, of course, um, the, 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 there is a festive break. Uh, at the same time, it is likely that things are going to slow down until the new year and, and more clarity is found between those off-the-record discussions. Thank you very much. Chiara Albanese, markets reporter for Bloomberg News, reporting from Rome. (music) 
going up against Verizon and AT&T. Some would think it is suicidal, but not David Glickman. He is the chief executive of Ultra Mobile, and he's here to tell us more about the company and its battle in the mobile phone business. David Glickman, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Vim. All right, so you are a serial entrepreneur, as I understand it. You you previously founded Telepacific. That was back in 1998, and that was to compete with landline phone exchanges. Now you're going after mobile operators. Tell us about how Ultramobile works. Um, Ultramobile is a nationwide mobile carrier, and we... Uh, we have uh, stores and offices all around the country, uh, and we assume that everybody has their own mobile phone handset, and we offer SIM cards uh, to put in your existing phones, uh, very much like they do in Europe and in Asia. It just hasn't uh, come to America just yet um, in, in full force, and we are making that happen. Well, David, how is it possible that you are able to compete against the likes of Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile uh, in offering uh, what looks like to be a $19.95 per month all-you-can-eat mobile fare? Um, well, uh, a little something that I like to call coopetition. Um, we, we actually purchase a network from uh, T-Mobile, so that we have the same uh, nationwide footprint. Um, and then since we don't spend hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising, um, and we just pass on all the savings to our end users. So, uh, yeah, so for, for $19, you can have unlimited talk, unlimited text, unlimited uh, data, unlimited international uh, calling, and unlimited international texting. Um, all you need to do is, is is get one of our SIM cards and put it into your phone. Now, in addition to it being, as you describe, unlimited, you can also customize the pro the the service. Can you explain how that works? Sure. Um, so um, at the um, at the lower price levels, uh, for example, nineteen dollars, um, you get um, unlimited data, but you don't get um, unlimited high speed data. So we have very high-speed 4G LTE, and we give you a chunk of that. Um, and if you want more, um, you just pay for exactly what you use. Uh, and you don't, you don't end up having to pay $60, $70, $80 like you do with some of the other carriers um, and have you know, 10 gigabytes of high-speed data if you only use one or two. So this way... Um, you, you're, you're unlimited, but after um, a certain amount, you end up uh, uh, going back to more of a 3G uh, data, and you can up, upgrade to whatever you want. How did you decide to focus on what you describe as an underserved demographic of the U.S. consumer market, uh, foreign-born U.S. residents? Well, uh, we... Uh, I basically, I've lived overseas. I started my first phone company when I was living in South America and offered 70, 80% discounts to businesses uh, there. And uh, at the same time, when, when, I, uh, when living in America, it's so hard to make international phone calls because usually the, the big mobile carriers want to charge you a dollar a minute to call overseas. Or if you want to use uh, the more inexpensive calling cards, uh, it's a pain. You have to dial an access number, punch in your PIN number, then punch in the destination number. If you're on a smartphone and somebody calls you, you can't just hit reply and call back. Um, and so we decided that we wanted to come up with a system that 
employed either free international calls or inexpensive, you know, calling card rates on uh, on a regular. Well, it's not it's not free in the sense that you do have to actually buy the card, correct? Well, yes I mean, you've no, got it, the you've got a twenty free. you've got a twenty nine dollar plan, thirty four dollar and thirty nine dollar, and so on. I mean, you have to actually yeah, well, buy the buy the card. Right. So, so what I'm saying is, international is free on a discounted mobile phone. So instead of paying. Sixty or seventy dollars for unlimited talk and text in uh, in the U.S. For nineteen dollars, you have um, you're, you're getting a discount on unlimited domestic talk and text. But at the same time, we give you sixty countries to call you know, about two thirds of the world for free. So you can call Mexico unlimited. You can call China unlimited. Canada unlimited. Europe unlimited. Um, it's just some countries that are more expensive. For example, some of the African countries calling Philippines, et cetera, et cetera, where we will charge you, you know, two, three, four cents a minute instead of um, what the what the large carriers will charge a dollar a minute. What's the incentive for the stores to sell your cards, your SIM cards, versus the SIM cards of more established players like Verizon or AT and T? Well, you know, we focus very heavily on. Uh, the stores as our distribution point. So we make it very easy for them to sell. Um, we offer a great product to the consumer so they know the consumer is going to be very happy when they get an ultra mobile SIM card. And we offer one of the highest commissions. You know, our theory when we launched the company was the customer is going to have the best deal and the store is going to make more money and have happier customers um, by selling ultra mobile. And we've stuck with that in the four years that we've been in business. Now, this idea of offering uh, data-saving data your way, this is what they call voluntarily throttling the speeds and the uh, access to various uh, websites or services. How is that working out? Uh, uh, actually, it's been it's exceeded our expectation. Customers absolutely love it. So what happens is um, you know, if you're on a plan that says, that says gives you 5 gigabytes of high-speed data, and uh, you go on YouTube and you start looking at a video, and you know as you as you as the video starts to load, and, and as you start watching it, it's loading much more than you're than you're watching. So if you're if you're 10 seconds into the video, it, the YouTube is already downloaded um, onto your phone maybe one minute of that video, um, and then if you don't choose to watch the rest of that video, it wasn't the one you wanted. You want to go to the next one or the next one. You ended up paying. You ended up using a lot of your data for video that you never watched. The same thing happens with Netflix. The same thing happens with uh, Facebook, especially because Facebook will automatically uh, download and play a lot of videos that you have you, you haven't even watched yet, or you haven't even you clicked on. Um, and so, with Data My Way, you pick the speed that you want. Essentially, you decide how much of that preloading you you want. And what we've discovered is a lot of our customers that don't like paying for, uh, you know, downloading high-speed data um, for movies and videos that they're not watching, they, they get onto the, the, the um, data my way and they pick how much throttling they want and how much, how much know, downloading. Indeed. Thanks very yeah. much, David Glickman. He is the founder and the chief executive of Ultramobile.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.